0: against this man and they answered him if this man were not doing evil we would not have delivered him over to you and Pilate said to them take him yourselves and judge him by your own law and the Jews said to him it is not lawful for us to put anything to death to uh, to put anyone to death this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show that what kind of death he was going to die Verse twenty three I mean, verse thirty three. So Pilate entered the headquarters against uh, again and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say that so that say this to you about me? And Pilate answered, I am a Jew am I a Jew, excuse me, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting would have been fighting that I might be delivered over, not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you, have a cu- but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God, indeed. It's good to be back with you guys this, this morning. Uh, thankful for Ben. Stepping in and preaching and being faithful with the word. Last week, uh, we're back in John chapter 18. We're very, very close. We will finish up John by the end of April, and uh, then we're going to get into First Peter together through the summer, through May and through the summer and through early fall. And that'll be a good study for us together, I believe, especially timely. But today we are we're 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 celebrating in some sense Palm Sunday. It's the it's the it's the beginning of the what many classify the church calendar generally classifies as the beginning of holy week and um, it's a time for us to take seriously all of that took place as jesus was prepared to um, be delivered up to death but then also to rise victoriously in his resurrection as we will celebrate next sunday together now we don't have a picture in john's gospel or an account in John's Gospel of Palm Sunday, but here's what Palm Sunday is. It's Jesus riding in on a donkey, on a colt, and uh, that glorious display where the crowds laid them palm branches down, they're worshiping Jesus, they're crying out, Hosanna. They are, whether they know it or not, they are worshiping the true king, the ultimate king of the universe. And, and really what it is is, One of the early displays of this, visible displays of of, of God's kingdom and how it stands in comparison to the finite kingdoms of this world. And so when we get to this second half of John 18, we find the same thing. We find a tale of two kingdoms. We got Pilate's kingdom... You got the Jews' kingdom, which are essentially the same kingdom, but they are obviously culturally divided and geopolitically divided in some sense. But then you got Jesus' kingdom, God's kingdom. And if we read the Bible faithfully and clearly, this is what we have seen you read all the way through the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It is how God's kingdom stands out, shines out on the backdrop of temporary kingdoms. Kingdoms that try to flex their muscle, but they pale in comparison to the brilliance and the the matchlessness of the kingdom of God. That is the Bible from bookend to bookend. And we find it fully realized in this trial, ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus, which we will think about Good Friday. And then, of course... The glory of it when Jesus is raised from the dead. Today's main idea is this. As Jesus stands before Pilate, we the church should be, must be reminded of the greatness of God's kingdom and how that kingdom will continue to shine brightly in the face of kingdoms that try to flex their muscle in the face of God. That's really what this is all about the church having confidence that God's kingdom will continue until God has done all that he has said he wants to do and then sends his son Jesus back. And until then, it will shine brightly in the face of kingdoms that relentlessly flex their muscle in the face of God. And so that's what I want us to see this morning. I want to see three things from this text, and then we'll then try to apply it to our lives. First, we will look at the duplicitous conscience of God's enemies, this double-minded consciousness of God's enemies. We will then see later on the uh, the truthfulness of the King and the true King and His kingdom, Jesus' is King. And then last, we will talk about the demand that truth has on our lives. So let's look at that first idea that we see here in this text of this duplicitous conscience of God's enemies again duplicity sounds like a high-minded word but it's just another word for double-minded it's another word for hypocrisy Um, i'm always about wanting to expand my vocabulary maybe you can join me in that Um, i like to sound smarter than i actually am so uh you know but we are all duplicitous in some sense because we are sinners sinners like to act less sinful than they actually are amen and we see this very clearly here we see several examples in this first verses here, 28 through 32, when Jesus is initially stood, stands before Pilate, of the duplicity, the double-mindedness, the hypocrisy that humanity will go through in order to deny their own sinful nature and yet then try then put God on trial. This is, this is nothing new, but this is one of the greatest displays of it. I mean, just look at what we see here. First, in verse 28, it says that they, they wouldn't go into Pilate's, like his, his home, the governor's headquarters there. Why? Because they were fearful that they would be defiled if they did and they wouldn't be able to eat the, the Passover. And I just find that amusing when I think about it. Here we got people who are supposed to be the models before the world. God says you'll be holy for I am holy. But really at the end of the day, they're only concerned about their own cleanliness and they're trying to like kind of prop up their own cleanliness before the world and then, and then apply different rules themselves and they would apply to Pilate's world and then therefore then use Pilate's world and his authority to accomplish their own means and their own gain. This is, man, this is like an ultimate act of duplicity. It, it fails to understand what all the cleanliness codes represented in the Old Testament which were namely this, that they're, they're, they're weren't to, they were not to separate Israel in some sense from like the less holy Gentiles, but that there was to be a symbol of the cleansing that God would provide for his people that would then stand above the rest of the world that does not honor God. It's, it's a point of deeper spiritual reality that these cleanliness codes are supposed to be representing, but these people have taking these cleanliness codes and they've been, they're beginning to do kind of like this little little slicing and, oh, you're part of that group and we're part of this group and, and, and therefore if we just do this, you know, we'll let you do all the bad stuff over here as if somehow or another they're not accountable for the things that they are seeking to do against Jesus. They were futile in their thinking about cleanliness. They had a, they had a, had a reductionistic understanding of what cleanliness actually meant and why it was important and who was the one who cleansed not them they weren't responsible for cleaning themselves clean and it wasn't them passover was for them to remember who's the one who was the one who rescues yet they were more concerned about preserving some sense of their own identity in the world and they were they were fine with Pilate dirtying himself up in the process they were willing to utilize the pagan and barbarian courts And their methods to deal with jesus so that they could keep their own hands clean but we do this right in various other ways right we will do this sometimes we'll we'll say well i can keep my hands clean if i can just do these little things over here um but i'll let everyone else the world do its dirty work and 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 that's just not becoming of a believer i like to call it cleanliness by optics you look like you're clean. You look like you're sincere about the things that are important in life. But in reality, you're not really concerned about anyone's cleanliness, much less your own. You're just trying to make yourself look holier than someone else. And that's what we see here, right? And, and cleanliness by optics is concerned with I don't do this or I don't eat this or drink that. I don't associate with them or those over there. I don't watch this. I don't use that. I don't subscribe to this. Now listen, Christians know we have to make conscientious decisions in all kinds of places in our lives. And this does not mean that we don't have hard work to do about what it means to try to be people who are serious about the commands of God. That is indeed a reality for all Christians. But when it is done in such a way, that all we are concerned about is how we are seen and not the glory and the holiness of God is seen they're not concerned at all about how the God of Israel is seen. they're more concerned about their own self-preservation and friends we gotta be careful with our own methods about how we try to seek to keep ourselves clean you also see this in this passage how they're unwilling to own their own judgment when when Pilate says what charges do you bring against this man what's their response we wouldn't have brought him before you if you uh, you know, if you wasn't guilty. And what kind of answer is that? Isn't that like a deflecting answer? Like, like you, mean, you ever seen that with your kids? Like you, you want someone to give you an apology for something, but they don't really say the apology. They say, Well, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. You know what? That's not a real apology, by the way. But but what we see here is that people who are not really willing to own their own indictments of Jesus, but they just assume that they're holier than Pilate, and therefore Pilate should just take their judgment on face of it and not really question their judgment. Friends, that is hypocrisy at the greatest level to, to, to assume just because you're part of one group or one section or you believe certain things or you do certain things that somehow or another your judgment and, that your, um, and your indictments do not actually require accountability. They don't think they should be accountable. God's people are always accountable to We're accountable to God, who made us and created us. His judgment's what matters, and so therefore our judgments matter so that we know that we're reflecting the goodness and good character of God in the end. We must remember that. We also see it here in this first first few verses, the the hypocrisy to back their own judgments. I mean, look at verse 31. This is just heartbreaking to me. Pilate said to them, take him for yourselves and judge him by your own law. And Jesus said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. But it's okay for you to do it. I mean, that's just... Listen, if your assessments of your own righteousness and holiness require you to be that cowardly, you're not seeking true holiness. I mean, true holiness does require us to be bold. To be truthful and these people are not trying to do any of these things they're just double-minded in every sense so why does john include this here in this passage for us well we see it right there in verse 32 it was to fulfill the words that jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to do you you may remember back in 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 chapter 13 verse 18 um, what jesus says i'll just pick up in verse 12 and when he had washed their feet, after he washed their feet and, and the disciples' feet, and he put on his outer garments and resumed his place with them, he says, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right to do so, for, for so I am. If then... I know whom I have chosen, but their scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted up his heel against me, and I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So in other words, what he's saying is, of course, we know Judas was there, and Judas had already betrayed Jesus or was in the process of betraying Jesus. And so in some sense, he's, this, this text is there to show the validity of everything that God was going to, was, was going to happen to Jesus. And so John concludes this here to show us um, to show us the levels of betrayal that he would experience at the hands of his presumably his own people. But it wasn't just Judas that he had in mind there. This is like the entire Israelite people, the entire Jewish people who who should have known it, who should have been on the watch for Jesus, and they failed to see Jesus for who he is. But not only did Jesus talk about this, over in chapter 12, just a few past few verses earlier, in verse 32, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So in other words, it's kind of foretelling the fact that it wasn't going to be the Jews who were going to ultimately execute him. It's going to be they were going to be executed at the hands of the, of the Romans, who then had certain execution, had certain like you know death penalty um, processes, and that would be the re- how he would die by being by being crucified on the cross. Jesus was going to die an unjust death on the, at the hands of the Romans, but also the blood is on the hands of the Jews. Right. And so, what John wants us to see here is just kind of this, wants us to really look at ourselves and say, so where are you at on that spectrum? The reality is, guys, if Christ died for your sins on the cross, you're counted among that duplicitous group. I am. Like, we have all hung Jesus on the cross, he died for sinners. And that those who would believe in him and his resurrection would be raised to new life. So let's consider just what this, the duplicity that we see here in these people, what it means for us. We'll come back to that here at the end. The second thing that I want to look at here is the truthfulness of the king and his kingdom. Right? The truthfulness in the kingdom kingdom because that's when we then turn now and Pilate turns his attention to Jesus in verse 33 and he enters his headquarters and he calls Jesus to himself and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? So what Jesus is trying to get Pilate to consider is it doesn't really matter who they say I am. My question is to you is, do you know who I am? So there's several truths here that Jesus unpacks in his his engagement here about the kingdom of God that he's laying out before Pilate that are really important truths for us to consider. Number one, that Christ's kingdom demands judgment for what we do with Jesus. Pilate will be judged on what he does with Jesus. Every man, woman, and child will be judged based on what they do with Jesus. And that's what we see here. He's putting Pilate in the seat of responsibility. You need to determine whether or not you're just willing to kind of take what they say or are you you willing to go through the process and consider who I am yourself? That's what Pilate's trying to do here in this passage, right? Pilate wants to reduce this. I'm sorry, Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, is this what you want to know or is this something that you just want to try to find out on your... is this what you heard from others see jesus turns the table on pilate he's not concerned in the least about the trumped up charges that jews have leveled against him his focus is laser clear pilate you must come to a conclusion about who i am i don't care what the jews have trumped up against me it all plays into god's greater plan in the end pilate you need to consider the condition of your soul. We must consider it the condition of our soul. Another truth that we see here in this kingdom engagement is the kingdom of God transcends the temporary kingdoms of this world. We look in verse 35 and 36. Like Pilate's response is, well, I'm not a Jew. In other words, he's saying, "Well, isn't that, that's just a squabble among your little ethnic and, and cultural sect over here. This has nothing to do with me. It's not relevant to me. It's some cultural squabble. Pilate wants to reduce the conflict down between Jesus and his accusers to some intersect uh, religious or national squabble, and it's far greater than that. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. What's he saying? He's saying, like the Jews played a typological role picture in God's plan they were it was never about them themselves it's about what they pointed to and being God's being God's ultimate people on the earth and that God would fulfill his covenant to a select people for himself and that all people of all nations and all places and all tribes would be could be a part of this group if they would accept Christ by faith and trust in him and that this people would be emerged by God's grace as they are called out by Jesus and by the Holy Spirit as we preach the gospel. See the application here, we need to think about how this applies to us, right? The world likes to treat our faith like Pilate does. To each his own, right? That's how Paul is treating like religious and spiritual squabbles. It just teaches, like, you just deal with your thing over here. And, and, and that's how the Romans kind of did. It's like anything goes kind of spirituality. And that's kind of what we see today. It's like, like, it's nothing new, right? There's nothing new going on in the world. In the end, the world assesses spiritual realities. as nothing more than philosophical and religious puffery, one commentator said. Everyone trusts, everyone's truth is their truth, or at least part of the truth. Religious truth, then, they pontificate, is ultimately can't be determined by themselves, so why even fuss about this? This is all just side issues, so let's just do our own thing. And then, you know, look, in one sense, of course, that's their response. Why? Because they haven't been told, they're not of the truth. Jesus says as much right here in this text. I was born in this world, and bear witness in everyone, verse uh, down 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So there are people who hear the truth because they have been given the truth, and God says exactly, again, this idea of election is a big deal in Scripture, whether we like it or not, because those people hear the truth, and they respond to the truth. Jesus says to Pilate, and he says to all of us, this is not a cultural squabble. Anything that's going on in the world today and in our nation today isn't a squabble between Christians and the world over-moral issues. It's about who has the rightful rule over the world. God has rightful rule over the world. And all mankind will be held accountable to God's rightful rule in the world. Friends, at the end of the day, we must be careful that we don't define the mission. You've heard me say this many times. I feel like a broken record. But we be careful that we don't define God's mission within geopolitical boundaries. Because God... Is not defined by geopolitical boundaries. He's transpolitical. He's transcontinental. He's not defined by cultural realities. He's not defined by ethnic realities because God is transcultural and transethnic. This is who God is. Many modern attempts, I think we've got to be careful in the church that we don't take many modern attempts to, to over-realize geopolitical concerns within the church because if not, we'll get wrapped up into them and we think the mission of God depends upon the realities of these things. And that's, that's you've got to be careful with that. And there's a lot of different frameworks out there. We could have conversations off, offline about it, but just be careful with that. See, Jesus says here, If my kingdom was of this world, my followers were what? We'll be, fought, we'll be fighting. Fighting for what? That I would not be handed over to the Jews. Why? Because ultimately they know that Jesus is the right king and he's going to take his throne right there and he was going to be, take over rule right then in that moment. But Jesus says, my followers don't fight like that. My followers, well, no, they... They fight for the spiritual realities of the world, that this is a spiritual kingdom that we're talking about and that God's rule, whether or not we see it or recognize it or not, is, and it's always in stake around us. Now, I want to make sure I'm clear about something and that you and I are not tempted to misapply what I just said. Because sometimes someone will hear that and they'll say, oh, well, you're just talking about spiritual things, so therefore that's not relevant to the real world stuff that we're doing here and therefore your kingdom of God doesn't really relevant. And I did not say that. What I am saying is, at the end of the day, we fight for things that transcend geopolitical and cultural and ethnic things here in this world. Does that make sense? There's a difference between the two. A massive, massive difference. This, what I said in the way implies that God's people don't play a part in the geopolitical things that we go on in our world around us. Of course you do. of course you have an interest in what happens right here in our own nation of course you have an interest in what happens in 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 ukraine of course you have an interest in what happens in the middle east or in or in china or any other part of the world of course you do why because you're human and the things that happen across this globe have impacts on everywhere these days especially in our modern age of course you have interest in those things so there's an There's a temptation sometimes when we say that god's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom that we over spiritualize the spiritual kingdom and make the spiritual merely just this kind of existential reality that all of us kind of own but it's really just a personal thing that's what the world wants us to do right they just want you to say well that's just your personal thing so you just kind of do your deal of course it's not the implications of the kingdom of god have real world implications on you and i today and how we will live until jesus returns so so To say, though, that Jesus, to say in one breath that Jesus is not concerned with the geopolitical realities that Pilate had, or therefore by extension us, is not to say that God's people are not living in the very context of those things. Daniel did. He lived right there in the middle of it. And he operated with the kingdom of God in mind in the very spaces there in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar. Well, I said this with the elders earlier, you know, when we talk about, when we think about Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. And he operated within that political structure that he had there. But he also had his eye on the kingdom of God so he could go back and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Of course these things have impacts on us. And we should have. Then we should pray for God's blessing. And we should pray for God to work in among those things so that his kingdom of God continues to be revealed and displayed through the church. So make sure we say those things Clearly, as we're walking through that, I, I, I fear sometimes we can misunderstand that there are a cornucopia of ways in which the church can relate to the, and the, the, relate to the kingdoms of this world. We see this all over Scripture. We see this in Acts 5 when, when Peter's standing before the tribunal and they're telling him, you know, we told you not to preach this stuff. And what's Peter's response? We can't do anything otherwise. So whatever comes, I take, I take responsibility for that. So we don't we don't pull back from preaching the gospel, even though the threat of maybe to our lives or to jail time or to imprisonment or whatever else. Like we don't pull back from that. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 13 through 15 how we're to relate to the world around us and our neighbors. Peter talks about it himself in his own in his own in 1 Peter uh, 2, 3, 13 through 25. I, I won't go to these directly, but just the fact that there's lots of lots of teaching in Scripture about how we're to relate to the world and to the governments and all the different kingdoms that we rub up against but even jesus right here shows it right jesus says look god's people always have my kingdom in mind and and whatever impact that has on them in this space and time is because they are always keeping the kingdom of god in mind that's what we must remember but what is their mission If our mission isn't geopolitical, what is our mission? Well, Jesus says of himself, I come into the world for this purpose I've come, to bear witness to the truth. That's our mission too. Regardless of what geopolitical or social or ethnic or whatever context we find ourselves in, our responsibility is to bear witness to the truth. Whatever that means for us. If that means prosperity, great. But if it doesn't, we must bear it so that the truth will be known in the world. Because truth has a demand on our life. Right? If we truly know truth, doesn't it not have a demand on our life? It doesn't demand something of us. See, Pilate's next question, this leads us into our third point. Pilate's next question is, what's truth? Well, that's exactly how the world kind of deals with truth, right? Truth is kind of whatever I make it. Right? So, what's your truth, Jesus? What's your truth, disciples? What's your truth, church? What's your truth, whoever else you want to put in that list? Like, there's a demand of truth here, and Pilate fails to see that. See, he's a relentless pragmatist, is he not? He's just like, well, truth is only as good as its practical outline on my life, and therefore, as long as it serves my ends, it's fine. But if your truth interferes with my ends, well, your truth needs to go. That's what he's basically telling Jesus. Your truth is interfering with my life, and that's how the world deals with it. If our truth interferes with the world's life, they are going to do everything they can to extinguish the truth that we preach, right? And that's what he's trying to do to Jesus, and and there's nothing different about what we experience here Today, but the problem with Pilate's question is, and the and the way that the world deals with truth is, it's just lazy. I mean, Pilate's question is lazy. Pilate's question is rooted in irreligious concerns that that, that, are, that are, they're are are so inferior to the greater eternal concerns that each, one, each man, woman, child must be concerned with. Pilate's question reveals, ultimately, that he's pretty much an unhappy person. Because he's only there just to try to do everything he can to keep his little kingdom together. If you know more about Paul's story, which I don't have time to go into, you know that he was a man who made lots of mistakes and he was just doing everything he could to stay in the favor of the emperor. And right now, this guy and his followers pose a threat to that. That's why he asked this question. Jesus' truth is interfering with potentially the peacefulness of his own little kingdom within the emperor's kingdom. He was going to do whatever he could to kind of protect his own interests but what he's doing ultimately with this question and what we do ultimately when we don't take truth uh, seriously is we're just we're ignoring our consciences it says in this passage that he you could tell like it's bothering Pilate. if we go back to the other gospels it bothers him his own wife, Claudia, wrote a letter to him. We see this in Matthew, and says, don't have anything to do with this guy. I had a dream about him, and this, is, this, this dude's got this bad mumma jumbo here. You need to avoid him at all costs. You need to wipe your hands of this and deflect this to someone else. He, because his conscience knows that what Jesus is saying is true and that the truth that Jesus is preaching and coming to, it has implications on his life as well. See, friends, when we are outside of Christ, Truthfulness is only as good as our fickle minds will allow it to be. Truthfulness is only as good as we're willing, as it's, it's, its ability to serve us in our own ends. And if that's the way we handle God's truth, ultimately we will find ourselves extremely ineffective, extremely spiritually deprived in our lives. Truth is not in the eye of the beholder. The, the world may struggle with its consciousness about truth, but we do not. And the world will do everything it can to ease its consciousness, even if it has to chew its own leg off. And we see that everywhere, right? It's everywhere in our world today. And the way they're going to do it is to try to push down as much truth as they possibly can. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1. We've read it a couple of times over the last few weeks. Just push down truth so that we don't have to deal with it. That's all Pilate's doing here. He's doing the same thing that has been done through every man, woman, and child throughout the ages, all the way back to our great-great-grandfather and grandmother, Adam and Eve. Push truth down so I don't have to deal with my own conscience. And friend, there's probably some folks in this room today that might be dealing with the same thing. Just pushing truth down because you don't want to deal with your own conscience. Maybe there's areas of sin in your life that you've just not been willing to face and deal with. Maybe there's some issues in your life that you, you need to deal with. And I just I encourage you to, to think about how the duplicitousness of the Jews, the, 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 the rejection and the lack of and pressing down of truth by Pilate, how it all relates to us. As we kind of make this turn now to kind of apply this to ourselves, I, I want to apply it in two ways. One is, as Christians, we understand that the law has a demand on our life. God's law demand has a demand on our life because God, what God does is good. And, and so what I want to encourage you to do is if there's any duplicity, any double mindedness any hypocrisy in your mind, like ask God to show it to you so that you might repent of it. And be, be careful with the pomp and circumstance that we try to do in term, terms of propping up our own righteousness like the Jews did. We can all fall into these places very easily. I know I can. Also acknowledge that the law causes us, causes us to examine where our kingdom allegiances are. Where our hopes are. And being mindful of where our temporal hopes are right now. Are our hopes firmly fixed in the kingdom of God, regardless of what transpires over the years to come? Or are they fixed in the temporal moment as we stand? Where are you in that? The law also demands that we examine our own struggle with truth. And the reason I even note that is because I see too many Christians today who are willing to compromise on truth. It's very clear in Scripture because they're afraid of that truth will have will cost them too much in the world in which they want to live. Be mindful where God's truth is being compromised in our lives. This is what the law does. It, it causes us not to just point our finger at the Jews and to point our finger at Pilate, but to go point the finger at ourselves. That's what a real Christian will do. We'll take the law of God and go, wow, that, could that duplicity be said of me? Could that lack of regard for the truth be said of me? Could that lack of trust about the, in the kingdom of God be said of me? And the answer is yes, it can, of all of us, of me, it has. But here's the wonderful news here, because I'm not going to leave you there. The gospel promises us that Jesus has done everything so that you and I might have hope, that that we can face our duplicity, that we can have hope that his kingdom will prevail, and that we can have hope that his truth is true and we don't have to worry about that compromise even when we do see i love this last portion here because what does Pilate do he he as soon as he says what is truth he he wants to get out of that moment as fast as he can there and he goes and it says he went back outside as quickly as he could to the jews and he says i don't find any 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 guilt in this man and who he is he's trying to get away from this and what does he do he says i'm putting it before you your custom says i can release someone And I find no guilt in this man, so would you have me release the king of the Jews, Jesus, or would you rather me this robber, Barabbas? And what do they choose? They choose Barabbas. See, the world chooses Barabbas. Why? They'll always choose themselves before they'll choose God. Right? Why would he not? The world, of course, chooses Barabbas because Barabbas is like them. And he, like them, should be not held responsible for their sin. But Jesus says, and Jesus goes to the cross that day, does he not? But what does he accomplish on the cross? For those who own their duplicity, for those who have put their hopes in finite kingdoms, for those who have struggled to really rest in the truth of God, but those who trust in Jesus as their Savior, who atones for their sins... They might have new life, amen? That's the gospel promise. The law forces us to face ourselves, but the the law also moves us and points us to the cross and where we find the need for those things, in Jesus and Jesus alone. Friends, this morning, if you're here and you need your conscience cleansed for these matters this morning, and and you just need that conscience cleaned, if you have an uneasy conscience this morning, you have a burden that will not be, has not been able to be relieved by whatever—maybe rejecting some kind of truth in your life, or rejecting some kind of kingdom, or whatever else. Like, can I just can I get you to see Jesus? That in Jesus, the he through his death, he ratified the kingdom of God. He pays the penalty for your sin. He pays a penalty for your unclean conscience this morning, just like he did for his disciples, and it's what he's been doing for his church throughout the ages. But for those of us who are here maybe not struggling with an unclean conscience, but maybe we're just struggling to have hope because this this moment's not a very hopeful moment, right? Look, the kingdom of the new sexual morality, the kingdom of. Uh, the abortion industry, the kingdom of, that invades and occupies free nations, as we see over in Eastern Europe, and the kingdoms where tyrants seek to, to prop up their, and flex their own muscle. They lose. They lose. And they fade off into oblivion. They lose. As I said earlier, this is what we've been seeing throughout the Bible. When God tells his people to go and fill the earth there in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, what do the people do? They go into a valley and they build a city to themselves. Why do they build that city? To show off their own glory. What did God do? He tore down the city. When God sends Babylon to be part of his plan to invade Israel... Isn't Babylon still judged? And didn't Babylon eventually fall? Does not Persia eventually fall? Does not Greece eventually fall? Does not Rome eventually fall? Does not irreligious kingdoms of all shapes and sizes ultimately fall? Yes, and they're in the history books. And so will this moment as long as Jesus tarries. Our hope is in the kingdom of God. Again, I want to respond and I think real quickly about a passage I promoted to earlier in Acts chapter 5. This is where, again, Peter is standing before this tribunal who are telling him, you need to shut up. Excuse my language if that's a little too blunt. I'm not trying to corrupt your children here. Uh, I'm not. I, I get it. I, my apologies for that. Talked out the street, talk, to Pastor Thomas. <laughs> And uh, Acts five twenty seven through 32. And when they had brought them, they said to them before the council and set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we... Strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, yet here you are, filled with Jerusalem with all your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, "You must obey God. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you, you whom you've killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him at his right hand as the leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses." to these things and so is the holy spirit whom god has given to those who obey him oh would we have that kind of boldness right here in this moment the kingdom of god is far bigger than the moment we're living in and that we can have hope in that moment right now even as jesus is facing the darkest hours of his day of his life his human life at that point you know it's physical life then and there the kingdom of god is inaugurating It's breaking through. And next week, we'll get to celebrate the full measure of that in the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, help us now as we finish this time up together. And Father, thank you for your word.